Hello everybody and welcome to the Going Up Cast, where this week we talk about two brand new movies, a new Netflix show that blew all of my expectations clean out of the water, and I went to opening day for the brand new Dust Bowl event of the year. That's right, this week we talk about HBO Max's Suicide Squad. That's the very last thing we'll talk about in this podcast, in case you want to hear the review of that particular movie. We also watched... Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Emily Blunt's latest ride-turned-movie Jungle Cruise on Disney+. Plus. Yes, I did pay $30 to see that movie. We'll find out if it was worth it later on. I also watched Netflix's latest animated musical show, Centaur World, and that is the first thing we talk about. I don't know why I'm telling you when these things occur in the podcast, but it's a nice thing to know. And the third thing we talk about is my day one adventures of the Washington State Midsummer Renaissance Festival, complete with rain and some other fun stories, because I do love the Ren Fair. And if you like The Going Cast and want to support The Going Cast, please feel free to go to uh, Patreon.com. I was going to say Twitch. That's not right. But you can go to Twitch, too. I'm, I'm on there as well. Um, you can go to Patreon.com forward slash Going Upcast, where you can become a $5 patron and get access to the movie commentary tracks, some Let's Plays that have done, and pretty soon there will be a lovely new video of me eating a box of weird snacks going up hopefully this week, if I can remember. Um, and, oh gosh, what else? The audiobook of the current flavor is The Amber Spyglass, the third and final book in the His Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman. Uh, I have finished recording that book. It's excellent. And we will be uploading those chapters over the next several days. Um, whilst I am in Iceland, which is less than two weeks away, for those of you who are keeping track at home, or if you're me, um, and just a quick heads up, just so nobody's surprised, that week there will not be daily audiobook chapters, nor a new episode of The Going Cast. However, whilst I am gone, I will upload in its entirety Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology, which I'm currently recording right now to go up all at once on the week while I'm gone from Iceland. So there is that to look forward to. Um, and I will also be uploading a book I recorded over a year ago, um... That will be going up around the same time. Pretty much as soon as Amber Spyglass ends, I will upload a mysterious third book, and then it will be Norse Mythology. And then when I get home, we will launch into the brand new audiobook, which I will keep as a surprise. But if you've listened to every episode of The Going Upcast, I have probably said it at least once. Um, is there anything else? Follow me on all the socials. Um, I'm at Going Upcast on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and uh, Twitch. And if you want to know when a new episode or a new chapter of an audiobook goes up, follow me at Facebook slash um, GoingUpCast or on Twitter at Margincore. Please don't Google Margincore. It will lead you to a YouTube channel of many things that I care not to remember. Um, but in case you're ever wondering what I was like in college, well, there you fucking go. I am going to stop rathering because it's got some, we got some shit to talk about. Let's talk about Centaur World. Check out those centaurs. I've said it a couple of times, but every now and then there'll come a show and people will watch it and then they'll come to you and they'll be like, yeah, it's good, but it takes a couple of episodes to kind of get good. Um, this isn't one of those scenarios, at least for me, but I'll be honest, it did, it, it took a couple of tries to get through the first episode and that's Centaur World. It's on Netflix. Um, it's 10 episodes long for season one. We don't know if there's going to be a season two just yet, but it absolutely sets itself up for one. 
Um, and the first, like, when the, when it starts, I was in. You know, war-torn uh, countryside. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rider and a horse. You know, they're fighting a war. They've got an artifact. I'm like, all right, it's a little cliche, but I'm in it. I'm with it. Let's see where, see where this goes. Um, and then the horse starts freaking out because, you know, war. Um, but then the rider sings a song called You're Okay. And I'm like, oh, it's a really good song. I like that. That's, yeah, it's, it's nice. Um, and then the act, the artifact gets activated and the horse ends up in centaur world and meets a bunch of centaurs, um, which in this world is basically like everybody's got arms, uh, and then the lower half of something else. And there's like a centaur giraffe and there's a centaur zebra and like when they first show up in centaur world, it went from like, you know, cool war torn fight shit to, I mean, like poop humor. And I'm like, oh, this, it was just a fake out. This is the show. Ugh. Like that was, that was my immediate reaction. And so I stopped. I, I turned it off. Five minutes in, as soon as the, the horse showed up in Centaur World, and I saw what kind of show it was gonna be, I was just like, I'm not, I'm not into this. This isn't what I signed up for. So I turned it off. And uh, a couple of days later, I was bored, um, and so I was looking it up the show. Like, it's just like poop humor and farts and shit. Like that's that's all the show is. Um, so let's take a look at like some reviews. Motherfucking show's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm like, how the fuck does poop humor have 100% on Rotten Tomatoes? What what are these people thinking? Um, and so I I went and checked um, what the fuck it was, what was going on. And I saw reviews comparing the show to Adventure Time and um, Steven Universe uh, and a couple of other shows. Um, basically saying that the, the poop humor and the overly saturatedly colorful was a facade and that the show got a lot heavier and a lot darker as it progressed. And I was like, okay, color me intrigued. Let's see what, what's going on here. Um, and while the tone does get darker, I wouldn't classify it as dark. There are definitely moments in the show, similar to Owl House, that they're they're almost horror-like in their delivery. Creepy songs. Lots of creepy songs. This show has three to four songs per episode. It's like 30-something songs by the time the show is over. Which is, in and of itself, kind of amazing that there were that many songs in this show. And a couple of them are really good. Some of them are just like joke songs, but... One or two of them have, like, really good, like, emotional, impactful messages or, um, set up the fucking villain of the whole thing in, like, a really creepy sing-songy lullaby sort of way, which I absolutely loved. So the music in the show fucking makes this show for me. I don't think the show would be nearly as memorable or as good if it wasn't for the music. I am a sucker for, for shows with music because it takes a whole other level of creativity to have songs in your show let alone this many songs and let alone having them be like narratively important that's a whole other level of of, of story creation 
That is that is awesome. The cast for the show is excellent. They all can sing pretty damn well, surprisingly for some people. Um, and most of the side characters are um, voiced by, I mean, renowned musical people. Um, there were some trees voiced by the band First Aid Kit. Um, Water Baby is uh, performed by Renee Goldsberry, who um, was Angelica Schuyler in Hamilton. Um, Fula Borg is Comfortable Doug. A lot of really great um, uh, fucking um, singers and vocal performers. Uh, my favorite probably is Brian Stokes Mitchell, who I probably best know for uh i'm pretty sure they were in the prince of egypt uh i think they're the singing voice for um what's his face the uh the big guy yeah prince of egypt he's the singing voice for jethro a golden thread from the tapestry those color brightly shines can never see its purpose and pattern of the grand design that's on that's that's brian stokes mitchell um but he voices a character called the nowhere king and this is what they mean when it's like darker. Um, essentially, what the the overall plot of the show is is that you've got two worlds. You've got the human world and the centaur world. And in both worlds, they were at war with these creatures called the Minotaurs. And the Minotaurs attacked Centaur World long ago and somehow ended up in the human world and were fighting over there. And the Nowhere King existed in the void between these two worlds, imprisoned there um, by somebody who is voiced by uh, Leia Salonga, who is best known for providing the singing voices for, I think, two Disney princesses? Um, Jasmine and Mulan. She she was the voice of... Uh, the singing voices for Jasmine and Mulan. Um, and she does sing in the show, and it's fucking amazing. Uh, anyway, that's the that's the overall plot. And the... Of, of, like, the whole show in terms of, like, their, quote, darker theme. The plot of season one is that Ryder is uh, traveling the world, following the Rainbow Road, assembling pieces of a key in order to open the rift in order to return home to their Ryder, um, whose name is only ever... We, we only ever know her to be called Ryder. Um, and she's played by Jesse Mueller, uh, who was in... What were you in, Jesse? You were in something, weren't you? Um, Broadway. All over Broadway. Um... Uh, Tony Award winning actress for uh, her performance as Carol King uh, and then she was in the Broadway revival of Carousel that's what I'm talking about I mean these are Broadway level vocal performers um, and Chad is voiced by the current voice of Mickey Mouse Chris Diamantopoulos Diamantopoulos I don't know um, so that's fun too but yeah Songs are, are incredible, and uh, Horace and, and this herd of, of people whose names are fucking Wamawink, uh, Zulius, Ched, Glendale, who is voiced by the creator of the show, Megan Nicole um, Dong. Yeah, Megan Nicole Dong. Uh, and fucking Glendale has this this vocal performance. It's kind of like a, like a gritty Kermit the Frog. I don't... I can't even... I can't even do it. It's like... There's just like this weird tone of voice that is impressive. Um, especially when uh, fucking Megan sings with that voice and you're just like, wow, that's that's a, that's a voice. I don't even know. I don't I can't quite wrap my head around it. I want to I want to try to replicate that voice, but it's um it's very cartoonish and it's it, I love it. It's it's awesome. 
And if I made a show like this, Glendale would be the character I would want to voice too. So that fucking works out for me. Um, don't get me wrong. The show is definitely weird. Um, like a lot of modern cartoons, they just kind of do things and have little side jokes um, and random offs that like if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. Um, which is always fun. Like the there's there's a good level of detail in, in the stuff that they they tell and um what i enjoy is um they set up the nowhere king pretty early on um and he's he's hinted at and feared throughout most of the the first season um and i mean the thing with setting up things like the nowhere king um which is a great name for a character i just want to throw it out there and the design that's the thing when we finally meet the nowhere king um, I felt like, I mean, I, I, it is a kid show, kind of. Um, kids won't get a lot of it, but it is a kid show. There, there's only so dark you can get, um, but I feel like Nowhere King needed a bit more, I don't know, I wasn't, I didn't really fear him, you know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a good design. Uh, the, that whole scene was very reminiscent of Over the Garden Wall, which I think is is significantly darker um, than the show uh, was at times, um, but I think the show balances the darker stuff with the the light humor pretty well. Um, unfortunately, there there is there is a fair amount of fart humor, um, including farts that like talk to the person who's farting and encourages them, which is fine. Um, there is that, but the the characters themselves are. Decently well developed. I think Wink gets the most in terms of a backstory, and it's it's pretty good. A um, lot of lot of great sad songs, like songs I would probably listen to on my own. Um, I haven't checked to see if they're on Spotify or not, but if they are, then I'll check them out. Um, gosh, yeah, and it it sets itself up for uh, a pretty decent season two. Basically, assembling armies from the human world and the centaur world in order to fight the Nowhere King um, before he destroys both of these worlds. And that's pretty much, pretty much your lot. Um, I think I'd recommend it. I don't think, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think it's good. The songs really do it for me. If you're not a fan of musicals, then this show really won't have much for you. I don't think. Um, because the songs are pretty present and pretty often... Um, and the characters are aware that they're singing these songs. Like, it is it is built into their, like, day-to-day that song singing is, like, part of being in Centaur World. Um, so it's not like the songs are being played over the top and they're, like, montages. The characters are actively singing these songs throughout the show. Um, but yeah, I think it's fine. Ten episodes, they're all pretty good. There's a couple of episodes in there that I probably could have skipped. But, you know, when the whole point of Season 1 is to collect these key pieces from these shamans... Um, their episodes are all narratively important because most of the episodes deal with t- interacting with the shaman and getting the key piece. Um, so even if it doesn't seem like it's important, it's still important to the journey, so it kind of has to be there. Um, yeah. But I think I think the setup for the Nowhere King and all of those creepy elements throughout most of Season 1 were more impactful to me than the the uh, the eventual reveal of the Nowhere King and interacting with that character for the first time. Um, although, that being said, when the Nowhere King first makes his appearance, that's a great scene. It's more like when he had established himself 
and was getting like like it seemed like they were doing a pretty good job of holding their own against him um and then he was only able to gain the upper hand like off camera so we're not really sure like what he did um and nothing makes a villain less uh and oh god is somebody calling me jesus fuck you scam likely nothing makes a villain less um intimidating to me than like not having established rules of power um like it seems like he's pretty powerful but we're not really sure how powerful and honestly that ambiguity kind of makes him less powerful in my head because it's just like well then it's 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 completely subjective you know what i mean when when like the the heroes defeat the villain it's just gonna be because of reasons because of the because of the story not because they like legitimately were stronger than he was but because of something else you know um like if somebody i don't know when when you understand the rules of combat and what both sides are truly capable of and then when strategy comes into play and one side beats the other because they were better not because of the story then i don't know it, it, it kind of it hits different you know what i mean hits different like a chessboard both sides are equally capable of winning and the the only difference is the person controlling the pieces and thinking you know logistically and four-dimensionally to achieve victory it's not because one piece was the prophesized destined pawn from from eons ago and of course will win because of that that's that's a less interesting story that's my point so define the rules of the nowhere king and tell me what that thing is capable of and then define the rules of the armies and tell me what they're capable of and then do the fight and then i can sit there and be like well if the centaurs do x y and z then they'll win but if the nowhere king does x y and z then they'll lose so but yeah it's it is deceptive in that you think it's just gumballs and and like snowflakes all the time and while it is gumballs and snowflakes most of the time there are enough elements of a darker heavier story that i i'm into it and there are also at least two separate elements of creatures that would consume you you would become part of the many and then like not have to worry about individual pain anymore and that was a consistent theme um and i was i was really like sitting there going like huh and it happens early on too like episode two you meet something called the tornado and it, it it sings this song about like join us in the sky and stuff like that and i'm just sitting there being like all right um well that's interesting uh, and then it happens again with the whale it was it's it's really interesting um i'm just noticing here on the wikipedia page that uh gray delise or gray griffin um is part of the show but we don't know what their character is yet so my guess is um season two is probably on the way and we'll just have to wait and see what that looks like um but no i, I liked it i liked it i would i would recommend it if you think this will be your jam and if not then you probably don't even know what the hell i'm talking about let's move on to the next thing in the podcast Well, I wasn't expecting to spend this money on this movie, but I did, and I saw it, and now we're going to talk about it. Also, it's incredibly early in the morning, and thus my croaky voice. Jungle Cruise is the latest ride-turned-movie out of Disney, and it stars the incomparable Dwayne Johnson, along with Emily Blunt and a handful of others. 
and it is your classic dumb adventure movie. Um, it's got elements of Indiana Jones. It's got elements of Pirates of the Caribbean. A little bit of the African Queen with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. All sorts of fun stuff. Um, and it truly is just a dumb action movie. And that's it. Like, don't go in expecting cinematic genius. You're not going to get it. It's got a lot of puns. Um, it does the backside of water bit. A lot of the characters and references are things directly tied to the ride, which I appreciated. You know, fairly deep cuts, uh, like Trader Sam is in the movie. Um, references to Al Dr. Albert Falls is in the movie. You know, stuff like that. Um, so they, they appreciate the original ride, um, as well as, for a little bit at least, showcase the, the original purpose of the ride, which is nice. Um... The ride was inspired by Walt's journeys um, around the world doing nature documentaries, for which he won several Academy Awards. And it is all about taking people on a, uh, a river cruise to see critters that they might not normally be able to see. And that is the point of the original ride. And that spirit is carried into the movie, at least for one scene. The overall plot of the film is uh very very supernatural there is a a tree in the amazon rainforest that supposedly will be able to cure any disease and fix any physical problem uh if you if you get their petals and they go on this quest to find the petals but wouldn't you know it the germans want the petal too to win the war that's right that's right the bad guys in this movie are some classic Nazi Germans. And I'm just like, oh, it's Indiana Jones as fuck. Um, and I absolutely loved that bit. Especially when they drive a fucking U-boat through the Amazon. I don't know for sure. And I'm going to Google it right now. Depth of the Amazon River. But I'm pretty... Oh, 328 feet. Okay. Wait, yeah, max depth, though, is 328 feet. I'm not sure that's deep enough for a U-boat, and I'd be willing to bet that there are certain tributaries and whatnot that a submarine would not be able to fit through. But who cares? It's a dumb action movie. Let's just watch it for funsies. And boy, is it funsies. Um, the bad guys are incredibly supernatural. There's a twist towards the end of the film that I was not expecting. Um, that takes the movie in a completely different direction. And I go, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <clears throat> because I thought it was a, a legitimately good twist. So, there you go. Um, but no, this movie's this movie's solid. Just don't go in expecting much, and I think you'll be happy. Um, I'm just a big fan of The Rock doing pretty much anything. And this is a movie where The Rock does rock things. You know, he's he is our generation's Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, you just need a big, tough guy to, like... Be that kind of charismatic lead. Well, fucking, there you go. There's there's Dwayne Johnson or The Rock or DJ or whatever the fuck you want to call him. He's just he's just good at what he does. He figured it out. He's got his path. He's, he's good at what he does. And I don't think it'd be unreasonable for Disney to sequel off of this. Um, but I'm not as invested in these characters um, as I was with the last uh, good rides to movie adaptation which was Pirates of the Caribbean if I think about those characters in that movie which has 
a few connections to the ride, like Yo-Ho-Ho and a bottle of rum and stuff like that, and the fact that they're pirates in the Caribbean. That's about it. That's where the buck stops. I mean, now Jack Sparrow's in the rides, so there's more in common. But there truly wasn't much. And while Jungle Cruise had a richer lore, and they did appreciate that lore and adapt it to the movie, which I, as a deep-cut Disney fan, appreciate, I'm not as tied to these characters as I was with Will and Elizabeth and Jack. Like, I thought those three characters were a lot more interesting and compelling than these characters were. Um, so, like, a franchise of Jungle Cruise, I don't think I would... I would see them, and I'd be like, yeah, that was fun. But the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, to me, is like a classic movie. It is it is amazing how good that movie is. Um, but Jungle Cruise, I don't think, is on the same on the same level. I would have this closer in connection to uh, the, the Disney adaptation of Haunted Mansion. Which is good. It is a good movie. I didn't expect that one to be a good movie, but Haunted Mansion is a good movie. Jungle Cruise is closer to Haunted Mansion than it is to Pirates of the Caribbean. And let's not even talk about Tomorrowland because I never saw it, but I heard it wasn't very good. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. I am incredibly sunburned, and the reason for that is because I went to the Washington State Midsummer Renaissance Festival this past weekend. It was opening weekend, and uh, I was there day one. Day one, Renfarer. Why? I don't. I mean, I had a bunch of buddies um, who wanted to go who had never been before, um, including uh, a few from out of town. So we all decided to hit the Renaissance Fair, and um, you know, it, it was good. Uh, it's not a particularly large Renaissance Fair. You can basically wander and see every tent um, in the place, uh, provided there aren't any lines, in like a couple of hours. Um, the, the true magic of the fair comes from the performances. Um, unfortunately we did not see many of them, but we saw one that I, I always like, and his name is Brune. And Brune is, um, just a fucking classic. He's got a great act. It's the same act every year, but it's a fucking great act. It makes me laugh every time because of his delivery. He's just, he kills it. Um, yeah, it's got, you know. Uh, you can you can buy a bow. You can get some swords. You can go to one of two drinking places: the Red Dragon or the Hammered Troll. Great fucking bar names. Um, there are lots of people there. Not many masks being worn. I wore my mask as much as possible. Uh, so there is that. Trying to avoid this funky new Delta variant. Isn't that great? Um, but yeah, it was, it was a good time. I was on the hunt for mugs. Because I, I collect mugs, if in case you don't know. Um, I'm a big mugger. <laughs> big, that's what we call ourselves if you're a big mug fan. Or I'm a big old, big old mugger. And um, I wanted a wooden one. That was kind of my, that was my, my drive. I wanted a wooden mug. That's what I was after. That's, that's what I was there for. And I eventually found um, a stand called As Wood As It Gets. And, uh, their mugs were good. They were made of wood. <clears throat> Jesus. They were made of wood. Sorry, early in the morning. Uh, you know, hand turned on a lathe, and the designs were nice, and the wood utilization <clears throat> that they used was, um, was good. But, my God, were those expensive. I think the cheapest thing I saw was, like, over $100, and it was, like, it barely classified as a shot glass. 
maybe a sake cup if I'm being generous. Anyway, I didn't end up getting any of those because it was far too expensive. Um, and then I found uh, there was a stone carving station that had carved two mugs out of stone. Very adorable, tiny mugs. One definitely classifies as a shot glass, and the other one probably classifies as best as a Q-tip holder. Um, they are adorably small, um, so I scooped those up because I have so many normal mugs made of ceramic that it is not even funny at this point. Um, so when I buy a new mug, it has to be something truly special and truly different in order for me to even give it the time of day. And I eventually did find... Um, no, actually, I apologize. I did not find it. My friend found it. We were we were in the like a, the biggest tent of the place, which had a lot of costume bits and um, like leather holsters for tankards and stuff like that, so you can carry them around with you and then like use them at like bars and stuff and be like, fill her up, and then you drink it. But uh, uh, my buddy found the all right for context. Season one of Critical Role, um, Sam Regal, who played Scanlan Shorthalt, the halfling utilized a particular tankard of enormous size to represent that he was a halfling. And I've wanted that tankard for as long as I've seen it pictured in that context. And wouldn't you know it, my buddy, who was aware of this tankard, and probably not aware of my drive to obtain it, but... They, they knew me enough that they were like, I think I think Andrew needs to see this. So they called my attention to it. And all they did was point at it. And I immediately recognized it for what it was. I went, oh my god. And I bought it on the spot. Um, and now I have it. Uh, it is Scanlan's Tankard. I am pretty sure it's the same. Like, if I showed you a picture of it and I look at the original one, I'm pretty sure they are one-to-one. -one. If anything, I think mine might be a little smaller, but I can't quite be certain because Sam Regal is like six foot something. So it's it's really hard to get a sense of scale for the damn thing. Um, but for all intents and purposes, I have now in possession of the Scanlan Short Halt Tankard. Um, vigorously cleaned. Vigorously cleaned. I hit that shit with hot soap and water like as soon as I got home. Inside, outside, the, the whole plastic thing. So the way it's designed, it's got a, it's got the metal shell, and then it has this this like soft plastic tub basically in the middle to act as the actual drink vessel. Um, and I'm pretty sure that might be like dishwasher safe. Um, but it, like that and like the lip of the thing is where you know your mouth touches. So those are the parts you really want to get cleaned. But I cleaned the entire thing inside out, um, really scrubbed it down, and now it's sitting in my liquor cabinet because I don't have any other place to put it. Um, but it is it is truly awesome. And it was the highlight of the Ren Fair for me. Um, but yeah, I got some sun for sure. And uh, I would recommend it. I mean, it's not gonna it's not the biggest Ren Fair. That's the one in Texas. Um, it, it's not gonna blow your mind. And I will readily admit that things are pretty damn expensive at the Ren Fair. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's a good time. It is a it is a, it is a good time. I would I would recommend it. If you are in the neighborhood. And if you are going, check out the Joust. Go see Brune. 
and uh, try some mead. It's all good stuff and all good times. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. The Suicide Squad is the latest of the, in my head at least, trilogy of Suicide Squad movies. There was the first one, right, with Will Smith, and it was shit. There was the Harley Quinn kind of side-along movie, uh, which is tangentially related because, you know, Harley Quinn was played by the same actor, Margot Robbie, and both the Suicide Squad movie and then the Mark and then the Harley Quinn one. I never actually saw the Harley Quinn one. I've heard it's good. It's on my list, so I'll get to it someday. Uh, and then there's this one, which is technically a quote soft reboot of the the Suicide Squad idea. Warner Brothers is really trying to make this intellectual property work for them, aren't they? Come out with three relatively recent Suicide Squad movies within the last like five years. Um, and despite this one's well-received critical ratings, I just thought it was fine. It's hard to really wrap my head around the idea of a Suicide Squad and have it be boring. And that's kind of what this movie did. It's not bad. It just didn't blow my mind. It's not very good. It's fine. It's very middle of the road. But I was bored quite a lot of it. And how do you do that? How do you do that? How I don't understand how you can have something like the Suicide Squad fighting an intergalactic starfish monster and have me be bored. I don't get it. So, the movie starts off with uh, two groups of Suicide Squaddies. Heading off to Quarter Maltese to uh, find out whatever the fuck Project Starfish is and to destroy all evidence of it. And Quarter Maltese is in the middle of like a militaristic coup and the coup wants to utilize Starro the Conqueror um, on other countries thinking that they can somehow control and weaponize this monster. And we're introduced to a lot of Suicide Squad people really quickly. And then they are swiftly eliminated uh, in droves um, about 20 minutes into the film. Kind of keeping with the name Suicide Squad. Only one person gets their head blown up by Amanda Waller. Um, and that's that's kind of it. Uh, she, she later threatens to kill more of them uh, for attempting to save Corda Maltese from Starro. Uh, but then Amanda Waller's, like, office workers go rogue and knock her unconscious with a golf club. And that was great. I fucking loved that bit. I, that was probably the best part of the movie. Because I'm like, fucking finally, somebody stood up to Waller. And, like, that's the thing. It's like, she represents, like, the fucking shadow government. Um, and she's just, like, she's, like, too big to touch, you know. But uh Somebody finally stood up to her, her fucking uppity ass and knocked her ass out. So I appreciated that. As a long time fucking goddammit Amanda Waller. Um, where, like, the mission is the most important. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but the core group of Suicide Squaddies is uh, you got Harley Quinn, who has some, f- has like one good fight scene 
where there's like a bunch of flowers and cartoon birds, which I thought was fun. Um, but outside of that, doesn't really do a whole lot. This movie didn't make me laugh. It didn't make me laugh once. Um, and I was thinking about this whilst I was actively watching the movie. There were definitely moments that were, could be conceived of as funny. Uh, but I didn't audibly laugh out loud. And I was like thinking to myself, I'm like, do, do I audibly laugh out loud when I watch a movie by myself? And the answer is yes. If it's funny, I will laugh out loud. So that is, that's not the issue here. Um, but it, it, it didn't, it didn't ever really get me. And Quinn doesn't really do a whole lot. It would be, it would be generous to describe that character as comic relief because they're not really around for a whole lot. Um, but they do some, some stuff. And that's great. And then you got uh, fucking Bloodsport, played by Idris Elba, who is the classic, like, I don't care about no one but myself and and me daughter. But it turns out I've got a little bit of a soft spot for most people in general. I just come off as a hard ass. That's Idris Elba. Then you got John Cena, who fucking heel turns his way into a minor villain role. It wasn't that exciting. And then he supposedly died, but then the after credit scene shows us that he fucking doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because they're already making a spin-off show with John Cena as this character on HBO Max starting next year. Sequels. Who else was there? King Shark, played by Sylvester Stallone, and the big guy who was Amanda Waller in Amanda Waller's crew. He did the mocap, so I thought that was fun that he got to do two things right there. Um, King Shark was fine. I've seen a lot of portrayals of King Shark, more than I think really deserves being portrayed by that character. My favorite version of King Shark is the one in um, the animated Harley Quinn show. This was a fine version of King Shark. Um, I did not know King Shark was bulletproof, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't think a shark is bulletproof, but uh, according to the lore of this movie, he's like a fucking shark god. Um, so perhaps that's why. Uh, and I'm, Oh, and then there's po- Polka Dot Man, who, if he just aimed his polka dots like a little higher, he probably could have taken out Starro like all by himself. Um, but we had to save that honor for Ratcatcher 2, the emotional heart of the story. Um, and she's fine. I liked her. Um, but yeah, uh, a whole bunch of them get uh, offed. Uh, Rick Flag is there a little bit. Um, and they uh, kind of go into this thing called Jotunheim, which is where they're keeping Starro. I don't know why it's called Jotunheim. They never really reference why it's called Jotunheim. But it's called Jotunheim, because Marvel. And in case you're thinking, yeah, there's a fucking lot of Marvel actors in this movie. I think there's eight actors who portrayed characters in Marvel Cinematic Universe movies who appear in this film. Um, it doesn't help, unfortunately. Like, all, every time I'm sitting there, I go like, hey, you're fucking what's-his-face from that one Marvel movie. God, I wish I was watching that movie instead of this one. That's what I kept thinking. So if anything, it does this movie a disservice by constantly comparing it to a Marvel movie. And it's written and directed by James Gunn, who did the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, which is another ensemble hero movie. And so you can't help but draw comparisons between the two. Is this movie bad? No. Is it fun to watch? No, not really. It's kind of plodding and it really takes a long time to get really fucking anywhere. And then when it is the final confrontation between the heroes and Starro, it takes about three minutes. And then it's just over and done with. And most of that's because it's in shot fucking slow-mo. So, 
it's fine. It's 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 a perfectly serviceable movie that does not deserve 92% Rotten Tomatoes. In my book, it gets like a fucking five or a six out of ten. We're like it's like right in the middle. It 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 does what it said it was going to do. It had a, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. The music was fine, but it wasn't as part of the movie as Guardians was. Um, is it fair to compare this to Guardians of the Galaxy? No, not really, but, you know, the guy directed that, and then he directs this. He makes you kind of wonder what the fuck happened in between there and here. Um, and I don't, I don't think we can be like, oh, well... You know, his vision got warped by the studio and all this. He wrote the fucking movie and directed the fucking movie. Pretty goddamn certain this is what he wanted. This was his vision. You know, this is what he set out to make. He might come out later and say, no, my vision got warped by the studio. In which case, I'm going to call BS, but whatever. Um, It was fine. It was nice seeing Starro on the big screen. I always love it when DC or Marvel dips into their... Like, the bargain bin of shitty villain ideas that they ever had, and they threw them up there. Um, but, I mean... For me, it's kind of bait and switch. A lot of the marketing material showed just this fucking huge swath of, of people in this movie. You know? You had that guy who takes his arms off. You had uh, that guy with the javelin. You, you had fucking Pete Davidson, who I don't like at all, but that's fine. Um, you had all these people. You kill most of them in the first 10 minutes. Um, and I guess that's kind of the point, right? But they didn't die because the Waller blew their heads up. They died because they were stupid. You know, it's just, I don't know. It feels like they they threw in a bunch of characters and a bunch of bullshit from the DC Universe just for the sake of killing them. And that isn't a good way to do it. In my book, you know, if a character dies in a movie, let's make it matter. Otherwise, what was the point? Just fucking meaningless deaths of, of these people. And it's just, I don't care that they die. It doesn't mean anything to me because I haven't had any time to connect with these people. I can only, like, connect with them based on, like, who the fuck was portraying them. Because that's all I know. That's my only context. So you killed Pete Davidson. I didn't give a fuck. I don't like him as a as a as an individual, and I didn't care for him as a character. So it's just like I don't even care. Um, it's just ah uh, fucking. I don't know. I don't know what the driving force behind this movie was. To be perfectly honest with you, it wasn't very funny. The action was passable. The CGI was not particularly good. Um, the idea of Starro and like his his like fucking parasitic taking over of bodies is a really interesting idea as was the thinkers like torturing of Starro for 30 years there's some good shit in there but I didn't feel like we spent nearly enough time in any of these one areas um I liked I like Peacemaker's heel turn I thought that was fine um I don't know yeah I mean <laughs> who is this even for is it the best DC movie no probably not not in my opinion um, at least out of this recent swath of DC films. Um, I enjoyed watching Justice League more than I do watching this one. And just like Marvel movies, when a problem is happening and you go, Hey, where the fuck is Blankety Blank? Hey, where the fuck is Superman? Because he's alive. 
and is being a hero, why didn't he come? I know, I mean, I could ask the same thing about Batman. But, I mean, it'll take Batman a lot longer to get there than it would Superman. Superman can fly. He can fly at really fast speeds. He could have been there in fucking no time. So where the fuck was Superman? And since they didn't tell us where he was, you know, it just pokes big holes in this in these stories. I mean, I get the Suicide Squad's going up against like a gang, you know, or or like a terrorist group. But when an intergalactic starfish monster unveils itself in quarter Maltese and starts enslaving thousands of people at a time, I think Superman would have heard something and been like, hey, I'm gonna go, go take care of that real quick. He could have just flown through that fi- how, how fucking great of a moment would that have been to completely undercut everything about this movie, right? I think that would have been more in keeping with the tone about these are just a bunch of dipshits and they don't know what and they can't do anything. That would have been great. Like they finally make the decision to go after Star and they're jogging back into town and they're like, we're gonna be heroes. Yeah. And then it's just you hear like a the sound barrier explode as Superman just comes rocketing through, blows Starro up from the inside and just ends it and he just zips off without stopping. It didn't even have to be like visually Superman. It would have been known to us. Like it could have been like blurry shots of a red cape and a blue suit and it just wouldn't be like Boom! And he just would have gone. And then the movie's... And then, like, you end with Harley being like, Well, shit! And then the movie's over. That's how I would have done it. I would have completely undercut everything. All this work. Building up. Fucking rip the rug right out. I don't remember how Superman fucking fly in and take out Star Wars. Like, it was no big deal. That's what I would have done. But they didn't ask me to write and direct this. They asked James Gunn. And when James Gunn stepped up to the plate, he hit a solid bouncer and he got to first base he you know what he hit a plate good job now you sit there and look pretty while fucking whoever the fuck comes after you can hopefully make something that I deem a quality film because this was an average film and it's over two hours long and I watched it so you don't have to and that is what I have to say about that thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up cast. I hope you all had as much fun as I did, and I will see you all next week for another episode. And just because I hope to not forget next week, uh, there won't be an episode the week after next week, because I'll be in Iceland. But there will be one next week. Have a good one, everyone.